0: We're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast, I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research The field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Christian Segeti, who is currently a research scientist at Google. Christian's research includes influential methods such as the inception architecture, batch normalization, and adversarial examples, and recently he's been investigating machine learning for mathematical reasoning. Christian's PhD thesis is titled Some Applications of the Weighted Combinatorial Laplacian, which he completed in 2005 At the University of Bonn. We start with Christian's background in mathematics and his investigations during his PhD on areas of both pure mathematics related to algebra and graph theory, as well as applied mathematics related to chip design. We talk about how he moved into machine learning research, including the backstory behind batch norm and adversarial examples, and from there discuss the historical, philosophical, and technical aspects of Christian's recent work on mathematical reasoning, which is centered around the problem of automatically formalizing mathematical knowledge. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com thesisreview. And thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Christian Segadi with some applications of the weighted combinatorial Laplacian on The Thesis Review. Your thesis was in mathematics, and a lot of your recent work has been exploring mathematics uh, in the context of AI. So maybe to start with a classic question, do you think that mathematics is invented or discovered.
1: I think it's it's more like compost, like the music. Mm. So so I think I think mathematics is not something that's I, I think it's a form of art in some sense. So a lot of people don't even understand why they explore certain areas. So mathematicians have a lot of freedom, especially in the theoretical side, and they it's really driven by beauty a lot. So that's my personal opinion <laughs> i mean there is a lot of, there is a lot of motivation comes from application as well it depends on the exact type of mathematics somebody is doing so if it's if it's if it's uh part of a, an applied process to to create something that's useful then it might might be considered as an invention as well
0: so then when this composition is happening say someone finds some fact about prime numbers for instance do you think that that somehow would be discovered by some other civilization who developed (laughs) mathematics or do you think that it's something like specific to to the way humans think
1: yeah i'm pretty convinced that it's more universal so if there are other intelligent civilizations then probably at least on the lower level they would discover quite similar mathematics but i mean that we have examples when uh we had the Cold War, and Russia and uh, the USA were kind of separated, and uh, Americans couldn't read the Russian literature, and uh, Russians don't, didn't have access to the uh, to the West Western literature. Then, actually, they they diverged quite a bit, so it's not like 100% in alignment.
0: Mm, yeah, interesting.
1: So there was a lot of difference between the the Russian mathematics and the Western. So if it's completely isolated, then they might have explored completely different directions and can imagine. I see. Yeah. But the physics gives a grounding that uh, (laughs) forces certain aspects to be explored if you want to do good physics.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. 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 So it might be that there's some infinite space of ideas and then what we're maybe discovering is like different parts of that space. So like the parts that correspond to physics and then if we have different languages, we might end up exploring different parts.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, mathematics is vast. And if you discover more and more, I think more and more divergence is expected. But yeah, it's, this is pure speculation. We don't have any way to verify this anymore.
0: Right. So then, yeah, maybe coming back down to the, the real world, could you talk about your background leading into deciding to do a PhD in mathematics?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I... I grown up in a family where my parents were math teachers and and all my brothers. I have three brothers and all of them studied uh, uh, mathematics in some I mean in the high school uh, they were in special mathematics class and I was as well and competed in mathematics competitions. so it was basically uh, I had no other choice to to just do uh, some studies uh, in this area. so one of my brothers didn't end up doing mathematics but he's still very related. But I, I have uh, one who is uh, like very famous in, in computer science. Uh, and uh, so it's like 10 years older than me. So when I started my studies, he was already producing uh, great results.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And my younger brother also became a very uh, profilic mathematician. So I, I, I just had this environment. And I also uh, competed in mathematics competitions.
3: Okay.
1: But actually, my uh, this my, my main topic uh uh, of my PhD thesis, it started with my master thesis because I already like worked on this uh, an interesting area that was actually suggested by much much earlier by Roger Penrose. So he discovered that there are uh, certain ways to uh, represent graphs mm-hmm. as tensor diagrams of negative dimensional tensors, and and that led to a conjecture. On certain polynomials that were associated with graphs, and if those conjectures were, uh, could have been proven, then the four-color theorem would have been implied by that.
2: Mm.
1: And that was what I worked on my master's thesis. But that polynomial was very uh, closely tied to the uh, weighted combinatorial laplacian uh, which is a which is an important object.
0: So you, so you said Penrose came up with kind of the idea that motivated it. How did do you remember like concretely how you stumbled upon that? Was it some area that you were studying and then you saw this result, or
1: it was just uh, I talked to my uh, discrete math professor and asked about uh, interesting problems and he pointed me to it. So it was not me who discovered it. Actually, it was uh, Martin Eigner who another professor who. Uh, discovered this paper by Penrose 25 years later, so that's a very odd paper actually. And then, uh, then he studied it further, and then I looked at uh, Agnar's paper. So, it, it, uh, but yeah, so the original paper was also very intriguing.
0: I see. Just one other question about the background. So you mentioned these competitions. Do you think that looking back, that the competitions are a kind of different kind of math than what you do in research or do you think that performance in these competitions really will predict you know whether you'll like or whether you'll succeed in research
1: there are different kind of competitions so Mm. uh, the earlier competition the less it correlates with final performance i think that let's say imo is a like high school competition it's Uh, It has a very weak correlation. So if you have like even earlier competitions, I don't think that anybody who is like in middle school competitions won't uh, become a mathematician. But uh, so it's even rare for like IMO winners might become in this area, uh, study in this area, but they uh, often don't become really uh, like uh, successful mathematicians. In Hungary, there are uh, competitions for university students. That are very comp- uh, so they they have a week to complete and a lot of really tough problems and those competitions correlate quite well with professional success. So yeah, <laughs> it depends.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> as you mentioned, so the focus of your thesis was well, the title is some applications of the weighted combinatorial Laplacian. Did you want to at at some level give some background for what is this uh, weighted combinatorial Laplacian, or at least how you decided to really focus on it during your PhD after this initial interest?
1: Yeah, that, it was more like a recognition that a lot of research I did was related to this Laplacian. Mm. It's basically an object that's, uh, that's a matrix that is associated with each graph. And you have a lot of freedom to choose this matrix so you can weight each each edge differently and each weighting gives a different combinatorial Laplacian. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but it has a lot of really interesting properties. And some of the properties were like uh, surprising uh, people who worked in the area for, for decades. So for example, one of the results in my thesis, it was basically, it was a result of a bet because uh, I, I talked to some a person who worked about fact, worked on factor-critical graphs and then uh, uh, mm-hmm. told me that he thinks he, he discovered a matroid that is not algebraic, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he couldn't prove it. And then I uh, I looked at it and I figured out it had uh, you could represent it with extremely uh, like <laughs> involved combinatorial Laplacian hmm. uh, and he he didn't believe me for a few weeks uh, went through through <laughs> the proof and then then he admitted that uh, he thinks it's correct but uh, yeah so it's uh, it was done mostly for fun but uh, the research was done for uh, uh, real applications so for example. Uh, placematic computer chips or timing uh, optimization. These topics are driven by by my day-to-day work.
0: Yeah, so the, the thesis has kind of three different sections. And I would say this first section almost felt like more like pure mathematics. It is. Yeah, yeah. One question I had about this is, for an example like theorem in the section, would you know that the theorem is true? and then the difficulty was in proving it? Or is it kind of like an iterative process where you come up with some idea, try to prove it, and then it's wrong, and then you refine it a bit, and eventually get to what's in the thesis, like the final result? What is that like?
1: Yeah, I think in any suff- sufficiently uh, sophisticated mathematics is like you, you collect more and more evidence, and then you convince yourself before you have the final proof. So it's uh, like you are taking leads uh, from what's there and then you, at the end, you you know that it has to be right before you actually have proven it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So so very often that's the case. And that was the case here as well. So I had the idea, it like it flashed into it my mind and then for a week I didn't know the proof, uh, but uh, uh, but I was 100% convinced it was the right thing. I
3: see. Yeah.
1: So, so that's, and then, then I, I sat down and I had to work out a lot of details, but... But I was hundred percent convinced that everything had to fit together because otherwise it was just too unlikely.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Especially when you think about like if you wanted to have some artificial system do this, then like what is it that gets you to that point where you already know it's true before you've even proved it? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. <laughs> in the um so like in the next section, it's on this nonlinear optimization. It seems like this is kind of a different style of math. Would you say that? And how did you focus on this part?
1: Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean when I when I started my PhD I and uh I I got an offer from for this PhD position uh that uh so it focused on chip design. So I was doing chip design and it was uh problems that arose in chip design naturally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, a lot of the ideas came from earlier papers and I, I just had uh uh, I added my own uh, like uh, extra <laughs> bits <laughs> to them, but a lot, of, lot of the ideas and results come uh, basically refinements of previous results that people were doing anyways. But uh, some of them were just uh, like theoretical justification of existing practices.
3: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: But we had a really, really great lab. That we have IBM people sitting next to us, and they were chip designers not uh, researchers and when we had some new idea they give us an interesting problem and then we worked out algorithms for them so that they can use them and uh, so that was really amazing so it's a very unique uh, place where you have (laughs) real industry person sitting next to you and and you can talk to them and learn a lot about uh, the the technology being developed so we 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 were, for example, involved in the first gigahertz, uh, designing the first gigahertz GP, a CPU, which was a, huh. a big deal that time. So it was end of 90s. So we had a lot of problems.
2: So
0: did you have like a formal project set up, or was it just happened that like the way your lab was structured, you had the IBM people there?
1: So they were they were guests, but the long term guests, like half a year or one year. So these were programs that. Uh, yeah. So the, my institute had a collaboration with IBM, and IBM paid a lot of money to them, and also that, so they, they they figured out programs uh, to make the collaboration better. But we were really involved in the design of actual chips, and so that, that's really rare for a university yeah, research institute.
0: Yeah, yeah. Looking back, do you prefer the style of the math from the, the first section, or this more optimization Type math.
1: I mean, for, from a, a like a aesthetic standpoint, of course, I liked the more involved, like uh, so that that was more surprising and more ex- interesting, but it had much less uh, actual impact. So yeah. So I mean, when when I did it, I I definitely liked the theoretical more, but now I I have more respect for impact than I had time.
3: <laughs> I see.
0: Nowadays, do you still ever think about these? Ideas like, you know, matroids and the weighted Laplacian and factor criticality and things like this.
1: Yeah, not so much about factor criticality, but let's say the weighted uh, Laplacian. Uh, it's, I mean, it just comes up like in various contexts, like the Hessian of a function or uh, or clustering or in computer vision when you are looking at a correlation between various parts of a picture. So you, you basically the the intuitions. Uh, that I developed that time. I, I haven't really used the mathematics uh, that much, but I, I, I definitely uh, know where to look for something if I have to look for it. And and it, it just pops up all the time. So uh, <laughs> without me actually wanting to work on it, yeah.
0: So it's like certain things like catch your attention.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the weighted Laplacian is, I mean, it doesn't even have to be associated with a graph in a sense that you can just like like look at it as an algebraic fact and then then it just leads to more intuition into uh, about algebra which is uh, useful in general so
3: Mm -hmm. i see
1: so i mean not 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 the main results necessarily uh, something have to do with what i do but uh, more like the intuition and the methods that led to them
0: one thing that's fun about doing this podcast is going back and looking at potential areas that I don't know. Maybe you could apply machine learning to now. So, if you think back to the circuit design, do you think that now that you know about today's machine learning methods, that there would be potentially ways to apply it to that problem?
1: Yeah, I mean that is a lot of people do that, mm. and I was involved a bit at Google in, uh, in that project as I, when it started. So Google has a project in applying machine learning on chip design, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was of the opinion that chip design. Uh, can be revolutionized by AI, and it will be, <laughs> especially macro placement, uh, timing different macro placement, and yeah, so other areas as well. But uh, whenever you have a problem that still relies on human intuition, I think uh, it, it's ripe for uh, being disrupted by uh, neural network-based methods.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because you in the thesis you mentioned like different heuristics that were being used and different like tree models that were being used and. It did seem like, at least for some of the things there, that machine learning could take its place.
1: I mean, a lot. I, I think machine learning would vastly simplify a lot of things that we did that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for example, one thing that, uh, that I worked on is to estimate the, the timing behavior of certain uh, subcircuits, and that is typically a machine learning problem. So I think uh, current machine learning could like to do a really good job at that easily without too much effort. But I think in general, uh, yeah, I, I think modern machine learning uh, will revolutionize chip design. That's without question.
0: So then, how did you decide to then move into machine learning research after your, your PhD?
1: I mean, I, I wanted to do before my PhD, so I was dreaming about it for, since mm. before that. But it was really hard to get into like machine learning uh, PhD projects. So, and I didn't really. Uh, I mean, at that time, I, I just wanted to have something, uh, and uh, but yeah, I, I was always a bit sad that I didn't do it, and I I wish I would have done it earlier. Uh, uh, but I mean, it was still a, I learned a lot of interesting applications at that time. It was like a like a good area because it was uh, very quickly improving. So chip design was like a, a growth area uh, until the beginning of 2000s. Mm-hmm. So that was cool, but I, I I always thought that AI will be a big deal. So may, maybe if I would have been in AI at that time, then it would have been too frustrating because it was very hard to get progress then. So, but I I, I was always thinking that I have to switch. And uh, one one of my motivations was that my brothers were really good mathematicians, much better than I was. And I, I thought that, uh, let's solve mathematics with AI. And uh, <laughs> that might <laughs> <laughs> show them. No, I mean, uh, but uh, it's it's kind of uh, funny. But uh, there was there was a part of that that I thought, OK, I mean, it, it looks like very clever, but can can it be automatized or not? So that was always in my mind. that Whenever I did any mathematics, I always thought of how an AI system would solve it or how could it be automatized. Yeah. So even like in my, in my teens.
3: Yeah. Wow. that's interesting.
1: <laughs> so I, I was dreaming about having like, like computer programs that solve the geometry problems. And it looked completely realistic to me even then.
0: But then w- when you started in machine learning research, did you have to stay like close to the chip design, for instance? Or how did you like, which problems did you pick when you were starting out?
1: Uh, so we had uh, like, I thought that that was my last opportunity in my life to actually change uh, topics uh, uh, dramatically. Mm. So and uh, and I, I was thinking of which company would be the best place to start AI research. And uh, and I looked around and I, I I interviewed at several companies, but I I had the feeling so it was in 2009 2010. And I, I I had the feeling that Google will be the right place at that time. It was not obvious at all. I mean Google didn't have a significant AI investments at that time. Mm-hmm. At least not in the <laughs> neural network or or the real life deep AI. So so at that time if you would say general AI, that would it sounds like a crackpot thing to say. <laughs> it was 2010. But but the, the, the Google recruiters were always uh, contacting me and asking me whether I could join and I had a lot of friends there. So uh I, I said okay so let's, uh, let's Let's do let's do a clean cut and then uh, not look back so i i I completely uh, like left uh, chip design mm-hmm. and 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 my only goal was to do AI, but uh, it was not easy because it didn't really so there was not a real big pro- project then back then and also uh, so I didn't have the background so
2: <laughs>
1: so it was not easy to get into the right area mm. And I had like two years of really frustrating two years at Google. So I worked on a project that I really disliked. But I was uh, thinking, okay, let's try to get into something more interesting. And the really great thing at Google is Google. You have a lot of mobility. So if you do good job on a certain project, uh, you after a year or two, you can expect that you uh, you have enough credentials to to go to the right people and then uh, try to get a much more interesting job. So at Google, you, you sometimes you have to wait for a while before you end up at the right place, but that is it's definitely very different from IBM where you are hired for a very specific, special, specific job and very hard to move away from it. Mm-hmm. So at Google, everybody is moving from one kind of project to completely different style of projects all the time.
0: So you said that when you first got there, AI maybe seemed different than it than it does today. Yeah. And eventually you started working on perception related tasks.
1: Yeah, I mean it was computer vision. So so I, I, I was lucky enough so that I, I, I talked to I was looking for a project for more than a year and actually I wanted to get it to Google Brain, but at that time I didn't have the credentials. So I, I worked as part time at Google Brain. So I, I know some of the uh yeah. I mean, I knew most of the people, but I was not really part of the pro- team very uh, <laughs> closely. But but I I, I, I attended all, my, all the all the team meetings for a year. And uh, so it was really fun because it was a small team. So right now it's a huge team, like many hundred people. At that time it was five to ten people. And <laughs> mm. so that was a really interesting time. And I saw how those neural networks started to show promise. And originally I was very skeptical because I didn't really think that this super simple could work that well
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then I, I talked to Hartmut Neven who is now the so he, he had a company that got bought by Google earlier and now he is actually heading the quantum computing group there <laughs> so and uh, and then Hartmut uh, looked, looked into my resume and somehow found that I was interesting enough for his project and he did mobile vision so he, he had this Google Google Brothers project which recognizes objects on cell phones and uh and i i started on that project but i was kind of like the backup person so i said, i wanted to work on neural networks and I said yeah i did that earlier like 20 years ago and it didn't work well i don't think it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> but if you want i mean it it's worth keeping an eye on it so do it for a year you will figure it out it's it's pointless and then uh then I, I did it for a year and it turned out that that was the future. And <laughs> then I stayed on it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you at some point become convinced about it or was it just like interesting so you kept working on it?
1: I, I, I At that time when we had this discussion, I was pretty convinced because I, I, I was in all these meetings with Andrew Eng and Jeff Dean and so it was like these really small meetings and I saw, okay, we are improving this, we are improving that. So after a few months, you say, okay, that looks like it's, it's it's working (laughs) Mm -hmm. so and so there were pretty clear signs they 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 were not clear signs for anybody outside there but if you are inside you 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 suddenly see that stuff gets solved that didn't get solved before yeah so then then when, when when i joined that team i was definitely i didn't think i would look back and 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 do anything else i said okay let's let's try it for a while and then we tried and then everybody has migrated to neural networks. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so there were no more discussions.
0: Since then you, you went on to develop some very influential methods. So for instance, like batch norm and this investigation of the adversarial examples at the time when you were working on these, did you know that this was going to be something big and it would have a large impact? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean adversarial examples was interesting because I, 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 I found them much earlier, like in 2011, and I talked to several people, and everybody tried to con I mean, I was completely newcomer, uh, to to neural networks. So I talked to Andrew Ng, and Andrew Eng was immediately dismissing it. So ah, that, that's uh, something boring or not interesting. Then I went to. Uh, Uh, Marco Aurelio Ranzato and then taught him, and he was kind of interested, but not not really like super excited. But then then there was a a meeting later when Jeff Hinton joined Google after AlexNet, and then I gave another talk about adversarial examples. So it was like more than a year, nobody knew. I just like telling everybody that uh, nobody really cared. (laughs) And then then, 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 then Jeff Hinton looked at it and said, "Okay, if this is true, then, mm-hmm. then we are in trouble." Oh, wow. And then, then, then I started to start to recognize that there is something more important. And then, then I, I talked to, I, but I still I was not convinced enough to write up it myself. So I, I, uh, <laughs> I talked to several people to help me out to so, so write the joint paper. So, and then, then I, I talked to Wojciech and Wojciech talked to other people and said, okay, let's dump it in some other paper with other people and other stuff as well. And then, then, then how we published it, but it was a big mistake. I should have just, uh, like published it earlier with one or two co-authors and then, uh, like, uh, just. So, I mean, the reason I, I, I was kind of, uh, interested in uh, having a co-author because I, I wanted to collect more measurement points on other models to see that it's a real phenomenon on, on, in general, which turned out to be later the case. But I was not sure at that point that it really applied to, for example, AlexNet.
3: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: But, and also, we had, a, had an infrastructure at Google that was very hard to use, so it was, much, it was not TensorFlow, it was a C++ system, so adding like experiment uh, along that line that now they would took like twenty or hundred lines of code. It that time it took like took like thousands of lines of C plus plus coding. So weeks of coding and testing and, wow. and and that was not not so much fun. I didn't want to do it.
0: <laughs> does uh does Batch Norm have a interesting backstory to it?
1: I mean Batchnorm was also kind of similar because I was thinking of Batchnorm back in two thousand eleven, twelve and then... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, i t- i told i had a, a good friend which we, we, we wrote several papers and said that we should try this we should try this and then uh he always said okay try try that now uh, if you have time i don't feel like it's a good idea <laughs> so, so so and then i talked to sergei later uh, in 2014 and then uh, he uh, he said yeah I'm, i have already an implementation i independently came up with the same idea essentially and then started we started to talk about uh, so actually I had an implementation myself as well an earlier version but it didn't work. And then it turned out that so he tried different variants and I, I I had one so so one point not not quite correct that was critical for making it work. So and we had a lot of discussions, but he, he would have I think he would have done it alone. Uh, so so he, he would have published it probably alone as well. If uh, uh the only reason I was on that paper later is that uh, uh so uh, so I, I had him running some other experiments, another more modest, And then uh, uh then it basically it, he said, Okay, you were already coming up independently for it and and you have me, so let's let's make it together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I might I might have not been on that paper at all if he If I, if, yeah, so it, it was complete luck to talk to the exact person who was doing the exact same research. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was the first thing I talked about uh, when we first met. (laughs) So I joined my, joined a new team, we had an outing, and then I went to this guy and I said, telling, by the way, we should, (laughs) I'm thinking about this. this, (laughs) So it was completely like, uh, absolutely impossible. Yeah. So I, I actually, was not even telling to him. There was three of us talking: my manager and and Sergey, and I telling my manager that I want to do this, and he, uh, and then Sergey was saying he was already doing. it.
0: <laughs> so, interesting, yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean that that is this Thai guys moment when something uh, becomes uh, so that uh, that independently people do the same thing because it, it just feels uh, right.
0: Yeah, that is interesting that the ideas, though, were kind of floating around for three years. Uh, So like 2011, you said till
1: 2014. Yeah, I mean, I implemented it once and it didn't work well. And then uh, that uh, later I figured it out that that was like a small mistake. That was uh, uh, quite important. And so I figured it out and I didn't. So, I mean, it was uh, just right (laughs) that it was him finally, Uh, but yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's like that's uh, that's crazy at Google that in this domain, if you work on uh, AI, uh, then you have these kind of amazing people around you all the time, and uh, they challenge you or collaborate with you all the time. So it's uh, it's kind of like an academia in steroids <laughs> in certain ways. So, so that's what I enjoy most at Google is that I have the opportunity to talk to amazing people all the time.
3: Yeah, yeah. Since
0: then, a lot of your research now focuses more on mathematical reasoning. Would you say that you shifted research directions? Like, did it feel like shifting to a new area?
1: I mean, in some sense, yes. But that was my original intention when I joined Google, so, uh, uh, even twenty years earlier. So that that's the direction I wanted to do. And it's not the mathematical reasoning itself. Is uh, I, I thought a lot of but. How you could establish a strong AI that's generic enough. So, when would I believe that an AI is really like general purpose and can do anything? Mm-hmm. And I started to convince myself that if I would, so there is hardly any task which would convince me but mathematics, because mathematics has this uh, very deep reasoning. So, if you can do mathematical reasoning, you can do anything. Because uh, if the more you mathematize a topic, the more it becomes. <laughs> So the the, the the more advanced the topic becomes, the more mathematical it becomes because all the reasonings you can perform is typically they becomes like uh, 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 formalized and formal reasoning is basically mathematical. So that is uh, to me is like, is like no other kind of reasoning than mathematical reasoning. Mm. There is perception and there is reasoning, and reasoning is basically math. And I worked a lot on perception, and I convinced myself that perception is okay it's not really solved in a sense that <laughs> you can do everything, but it was on a clear trajectory that uh, that you could see that every that it improves so fast that it's 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 getting uh it it's, it's able to do a- everything basically soon
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it was unclear and it's still kind of unclear whether we we can have a general purpose reasoning engine that can do anything in math for example
3: yeah i see
1: so and I, I and i found that this this would convince me when we get there that that we reached uh, that we reached an ai that can do almost anything a human can do at least in like the productive sense
0: <laughs> so then that, that's interesting what you said there about reasoning like all reasoning is mathematical reasoning so then how do we characterize these maybe just intuitive notions that we have of reasoning, like common sense reasoning, or if we listen to a legal case, then someone is, is doing reasoning, but it might not be as kind of like airtight or as rigorous as formal mathematics. Is there ultimately no difference between those things?
1: I mean, you can separate the two, and I think that there is a perception and like word building aspect that you domain knowledge, and that is the the hard reasoning part. Mm. And if you get really good at some domain, then you you mathematize all the aspects that you can mathematize, and you build up fuzzy models of the rest. And the fuzzy models we know how to build up because I mean we can do like super wide shallow models, uh, but uh, that can that can do basically emulate any kind of human intuition. But not being able to do like a lot of step planning and a lot of like a complicated uh, like real reasoning. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so we definitely have the components to to perceive the world or perceive like complicated uh, distributions and model them. Uh, uh, this kind of fuzzy type of intuitive uh, reasoning is definitely within reach, or it's we already reached it, or. Or it's, it's very close. But I think the real question is, how do we combine it with something that is more verifiable and more uh, concrete and very deep? So and then I think mathematics is the, is the ultimate version. So I mean, if you look at it almost so, if, For example, if you say Game of Go, that's mathematics, because it's just like saying it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a statement about a tree. But so almost any, any full two-player games are just mathematics. So, so everything that you can formally specify uh, is mathematics, basically.
0: Yeah, like just to make sure I understand correctly, so then like, are there types of reasoning that we might informally use and then it's possible to formalize them and we just don't? Again, like in a legal case or when we're using some kind of common sense reasoning, that can actually be formalized into mathematics?
1: Part of it, yes, no, not completely, of course. I mean, in a legal case, you need a lot of information about uh, even societal structure that even change over time. I, so I think you cannot really uh, like get to a perfect legal uh, like robot without having real-life experiences in a lot of respects. A lot of them can be actually learned from reading. So I'm really surprised how well these language models learn and how, how much of the world they are aware of uh, by completely second-hand knowledge without having any experience. Like, they never saw a flower, <laughs> but still they can make like uh, really nice poems about flowers. So, uh, and, uh, or, or or make statements or stories about them. So it's, I think it's, it's very interesting that how much this models can squeeze out of information uh, that is uh, very uh, like, rudimentary right right so i think and and, and then the final end i mean all those models that represent these distributions so so if you look at the language model is almost any machine learning model is basically just a distribution right so it's like it's a function that represents a distribution a probability distribution
2: Mm
1: -hmm. i mean you can formally say what is that distribution so once you learn your model you could just dump all the numbers and say Okay, so this is <laughs> this is the probability distribution, so it's formalized in a sense.
3: Mm, I see.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not completely formal, somehow it's like I think it's kind of like matches the reality very well. And then you can make concrete statements about those models actually. So you can actually mathematically analyze uh, what are the problems with your models. So there could be uh, an interplay between the two
0: yeah that's really interesting perspective. Maybe we're just getting too much into the philosophy here, but then what do you think of the difference between like deduction versus induction so like a scientist might make a lot of observations about the world and then conject like come up with some some law and that might correspond to mathematics. but it seems like the process leading up to that is something something different. I mean, don't we still have to develop the a i system to do to do that part of it?
1: Yes. And I think that induction is the main workhorse of uh, almost any real kind of reasoning that's interesting, and deduction is basically just the verification step.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, we, we, for example, when we do do our project uh, that we use neural networks or mathematics, we, the re- we actually we consider not using any formal um, theorem prover at all that can do discrete research. Uh But I mean, the main reason we still do is to to give a grounding so that you have a verifiable set of truths. So it's much easier to engineer a system in which you can give like create concrete criteria. But I think it would be perfectly possible to create a mathematical reasoning engine that, that works like Ramanujan work, that it just creates a lot of things and then it it it, it based on coherence and, and, and mostly probabilities and intuitions. And, it wouldn't be able to verify anything, but I think it still could get yeah. <laughs> it would it would be a very interesting task. I don't know how to do it, but i think it's possible and i think that that that's so i i i firmly believe in that That's that's uh that's a core that's the that's the real meat
2: yeah yeah
1: but uh but it's, it for engineering wise yeah you need that scaffolding. So if you want to build a building, you you always have this scaffolding while you are building it because otherwise you, I mean, you, you, you cannot build it.
2: Right.
0: (laughs) And then, uh, so then it sounds like this is getting at this, um, problem that you've mentioned in some of your talks and papers, which is auto formalization, where you're going from the informal content to some formal representation. Did you maybe want to just talk about, about that idea?
1: Yeah, so, so basically the idea is the following. It's very, uh, So it's very hard to understand. So how do you assign s- semantic to natural language content? So for example, if you read a poem about a the flower, then how do you make sure that your system is actually knowing what is a flower? So it's not just a symbol with an embedding vector. So I'm very interested in this grounding problem. So and I think mathematics gives a very nice way to address this grounding without having to have real life experience, because if you want to let's say have grounding about flowers and and objects in the real world, then you then you of course you have you need a robot or somebody, some some uh, uh, some incarnation mm-hmm. that can actually go into that environment and experience those objects right. But mathematics uh, can be experienced inside the computer, so you don't need any extra environment outside the computer. So you can build a system that uh, that works with formal mathematical objects like a computer algebra system, and then uh, formulate statements in natural language back and forth. Mm. And the, the question would be how could you this how could you create a system that learns to talk about mathematics in a very informal way? Like a mathematician does. So, for example, if I talk to you and tell uh, something about the La- uh, Laplacian, you, I can tell you a few sentences. You don't hundred percent get it, but uh, you still get a lot of information out of it, right? Right. And and so mathematical communication is super fuzzy. So it's much fuzzier than most people think. And so it's not it's not really just like translating <laughs> a, a formal mathematical uh, like. Uh, object into an informal object. (laughs) The informal object contains much different kind of information uh, than the formal. Right, right. So so that's one thing. The other thing is that if I want to create a, a system that can learn mathematics, it's very hard to collect training data for it, at least in the formal format, because most of the mathematics is not really given in really formal way. So if you look at a, a complicated paper that is kind of like a research paper that is published decently, then, then most of the mathematics is such high level that you cannot easily formalize it, even if you tried. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a programming task that you sit down and you would have to program for weeks to just formalize a single mathematical paper. Because actually a lot of the notions are not formalized yet, so you would have to build up the mathematics stuff until that point. So the idea here is that can we automatize that whole process? So can we build up the whole mathematics from natural language alone? And that would solve two problems. One problem is that we don't have enough training data to train a real strong reasoning engine. And the other problem is the, the grounding problem in natural language. I see. And then if we can do that, then we can we basically we solve both reasoning and we gave a pretty nice uh, example of a system that can understand a language and and demonstrate that it can relate to to the actual <laughs> content it refers to because a lot of most of the lecture language processing nowadays is disconnected from the from the content so it's it's poorly syntactic it's not semantic hmm. and 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 what i what i really think is that having having a real semantic understanding of language. So that's one thing you want to demonstrate, and the other thing is that you can argue about almost anything that can be argued. So if you solve these two problems at once, uh, then then you have a really good AI. So then I would be very happy about it. So that I would say it's like I don't even know what else I want from an AI. Yeah, yeah. And and that's why I think is auto formalization. I uh, is basically it's a heads-on attack on the on one of the core problems in AI.
0: Yeah, that does sound really powerful. So then you start with the informal language and then it's almost like the definition of the grounding problem that you want to map it to some formal representation. Yeah. And then how does that help you? So let's say we formalize a math textbook. How does that actually help you with the kind of argument part or the the proving part?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you you formalize a textbook, then you... So, first of all, I don't think you can formalize the textbook without having to be able to reason very strongly, because most of the textbooks contain a lot of gaps. So the system has to be at least as good as reasoning uh, that as a student that can read that textbook. Mm. So uh, at least reasoning-wise. and uh, and, and it basically it has to has to reason it has to have very strong capabilities to fill in all the gaps
3: I see I see uh,
1: in the, the proof so basically it, it's not it's not enough that it just creates the right transcription because it doesn't know what is the right transcription it has to try different transcriptions and try to verify them did I understand it correctly or not is there some hidden assumptions that the book maybe doesn't mention uh, and the book says, okay, similarly, we can do the other statement, of course, and you have to adapt that stat- proof to the other statement or figure out uh, alternatively, we can prove an alternative fact about the other object. Then you have to figure out what is the alternative fact. I see, I see. So so all these things, are, or say <laughs> give an explicit formula about this or that. You have to figure out uh, what what does it mean explicit formula. So that's not clear what is an explicit formula, for example. So there are a lot of disambiguation and reasoning that goes into just formalizing something. Right. So I don't think you can formalize alone. You have to have a really strong understanding while you are formalizing. So I, I, what I envision is a system that can improve its own reasoning capabilities while it can understand more and more. Just like a student in mathematics, you you, you don't just alphabetically read all the mathematics books. That's impossible, right? Yeah. So you have to... Have to <laughs> First start with the elementary arithmetics and then move your way up, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and while you are doing, you are learning the mathematics, you are learning how to reason, you're learning how to interpret things. You you improve your understanding of language and you learn, improve your understanding of uh of reasoning at the same time. So I don't think that you can discontinue to if you want to create a system that learns from natural language.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's not, it's not doing the formalization and then testing whether the thing has reasoning. It's like the act of auto formalizing, kind of shows that the system is capable of of reasoning. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, it has to it has to learn. It has to climb. So when, the more you understand, the more you you can reason, and the more you can reason, the more you can understand. So I think it it has to be a bootstrap process that complicated and Interly
0: and then, given such a system, so we would be convinced that it's capable of reasoning. Do we then use this for some downstream task, like give it an informal conjecture and then it could produce a proof for us, or do you have a vision for that?
1: yeah, I mean, proving is definitely one of the uh my more straightforward thing to test the system on because that's what it was trained for, so uh. But yeah, I, I also think a system like that could be also trained for other purposes, like it would understand... So, for example, if it reads all of human mathematics, it, you could teach it to learn mathematical taste mm. and intuition. So, yeah. for example, it could devise new new mathematics, so it could build up completely new areas of mathematics based on what humans are interested in, just learning our taste in mathematics. I see, I see. But if you talk to... If you give 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 it ciomsec it say okay can i find the generalization of those theorems? and then then try to prove the generalization i mean that might might be part of the the reasoning anyways but in general so so i think i think as such a system it basically you can imagine it like a body that can talk with you about mathematics but mathematics only
0: what kind of steps have been made towards this and are things kind of progressing as fast as you thought or have things surprised you
1: yeah there were things that surprised me so i mean i didn't really expect super fast but i mean i i'm always uh, disappointed still with the progress that we make so it's uh, like when you make things then you always like it looks like it's more work than you uh, planned and that's always the case with almost everything on the other hand i see that the area is progressing extremely fast so we My my plan is not to just like work in isolation. We invite a lot of people to work with us or help with uh, with stuff that they invented. So for example, we are building a lot on uh, other infrastructure and neural architectures and other ideas and natural language processing systems that have improved uh, amazingly in the past few years. So for example, we have now natural language processing systems that can do crazy things by their own so, for example, that so the current language models can do uh, all kinds of like simple reasoning without being actually trained for it. Which is so. This is a result by OpenAI that was published recently. But also, Google has a lot of like such systems that uh, like uh, so Google uses a lot of language models for all kinds of purposes. And uh, and and the the power of these architectures is amazing. So I'm I'm really Excited that I work in an environment where this was invented, and uh, I have like uh, access to infrastructure that is uh, that we can very efficiently train such models and exploit them. So, so for example, one of the la- our latest paper is the skip tree training on uh, mathematical formulas, where we are uh, taking formulas and then we training on predicting missing parts of the formula. Like for example, if you have a complicated statement you can predict like missing type information. but type information prediction is not so hard i mean that type inference is solved but even on that is like so the, so ne- neural networks can learn to do type inference very easily so that's not really a big problem but it can also like figure out missing parts of the equation so what is like if you're given a one side of the equation in a context it figures out what is missing so so it ca- it can do a lot of conjecturing or missing assumption. It can fill in assumptions when we say, okay, here is an assumption we are missing. Tell me what is it. And it figures it out. Yeah, yeah. So and, and and these networks were trained on a single task. It's just taking a formula and then we delete random subtree of that formula and say, Okay, please predict the subtree. And we can evaluate that model on a lot of tasks, like this that I mentioned. And it's really amazing that you that this simple training <laughs> that is hardly different from but uh, other people doing language processing can do reasoning without any additional engineering.
3: Yeah, that is cool.
1: And so this is this surprises me very much. Yeah.
0: And then another thing that you've looked into is like reasoning in a continuous space. So like this reasoning in in latent space paper. Mm-hmm. And this got me thinking. Like it seems like at least intuitively, or maybe what people talk about is that reasoning is somehow you know, like symbolic and discrete, and it's somehow different than the way the neural network works. Like, what do you think about this? Do you think that there is some kind of gap there or?
1: Well, I think, I mean, my, my point is that human brain didn't evolve to do mathematics, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, so everything in our brain is basically, it's a very uniform structure. We are just a very general purpose and still, we have people like Roger Penrose or Palma or like Andrew Weiss, or they can do amazing things
2: mm-hmm.
1: with this uh, stupid ape brain <laughs> that was absolutely not evolved to do 10 years of research in some absolutely abstract domain. So, I mean, we are just above this brain. I mean, it's. Uh, it's for, for completely different purposes, right? They, they were not really about deep reason.
0: It, it does suggest that mathematics is discovered and not invented.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's an orthogonal question. It's more its more about the question that that I think a human brain is highly non-symbolic. Mm. So it was not really designed for symbolic purposes. Yeah. So I generally think that what we... Uh, so far what I see is that, for example, or, or Alpha AlphaGo alpha zero so you look at i mean it can it can do reasoning where you have like uh, distinguish between possibilities that are completely different so if you make a wrong move in chess then you lost the game immediately
2: mm-hmm.
1: similarly in go and these 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 engines are, are really good and they don't do anything but they just learn uh, so they basically what they do is they 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 just do like uh, propagation in a uh, continuous space. And so, even if you do like Alpha zero, for example, does a, a bit of search, but if you remove the search aspect and then you just take the move uh, that is the highest scored by the neural network, then you you beat ninety nine percent of all the go players in the world or well, only with that. <laughs> so it would be a pretty strong for them player or something like that. that like you have to in a country or something, like that. so you well, know, Western European country, for example. So, 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 so no, I don't think uh, you really need a lot of symbolic. But I think uh, hardware is naturally more efficient on uh, on doing symbolic manipulations, Current hardware. So I think it might, we might get to the point where we, so what I think is how AI will progress probably is that we will have a big, a long time, uh, like we, have, we will have a few years when AI overtakes a lot of things in, and doing everything with neural networks and, and, and traditional deep learning. And then it will, it will design systems that have more and more discrete and symbolic components inside and integrates them into itself. So it will become basically, I think, program synthesis will be the next step in machine learning. I see, yeah. Where you and and, and mathematics is basically a precursor of program synthesis. So that's actually my my long term dream is program synthesis to have somebody who just 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 tell your AI what you want uh, to program and then uh, then it programs it for you.
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That seems very similar to the auto formal. If you solve auto formalization, then. Yeah, yeah, that'd be natural.
1: So, I mean, auto formalization is kind of like program synthesis because, because uh, actually pro, uh, theorems, are, theorems are programs in yeah. <laughs> So, that is a very clear mathematical sense. So, there is a theorem uh, that says that there is an isomorphism between types and proofs and programs and uh, so sorry, programs and proofs and types and theorems. So, uh, that's the Auricabar correspondence. I mean that's a very uh, very uh, very uh, theoretical stuff. But even in a more practical sense, if you synthesize a proof uh, that 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 is formal, then typically it it synthesizes a program. It doesn't synthesize the proof itself, but the program that actually finds the proof. Yeah. Even in our systems.
0: You mentioned AlphaGo there. So, do you think that it would be useful to have some equivalent? grand challenge in mind for this problem or even if we didn't actually do the challenge do you have something in mind where if you saw a system do this you'd say okay well we've we've solved this or we've made a lot of progress
1: so there is a challenge that is uh designed by microsoft uh, research Uh, so it's called the imo grand challenge Uh, but they they try to be very formal so they Uh, they give the formal statement to the system and then uh, the task is to solve international mathematics Olympiad problems uh, automatically. Mm. So the idea there is that those are those mathematical problems that a skilled uh, mathematician can always solve with with a high level of certainty. And uh, so, but we cannot do it by computer. So the question is, can we solve them? And I think it's an interesting challenge. But I, I'm kind of, I don't find it ambig- as, uh, ambitious enough. <laughs> so, and I, I, I really think that we might get earlier to auto formalization than solving that challenge uh, by engineering. But I might be wrong. I, I, I think, I think it's highly unclear. So I might be, <laughs> might be too optimistic or pessimistic. Depends on how you look at it. <laughs> uh, so, so i think it's really really hard to make a challenge for mathematics that's really ambitious because because just creating a measurement is a hard problem so we created various benchmarks uh, but we don't really know how <laughs> how well performance on our benchmark so for example if have this whole light benchmark uh, we say, okay, uh, prove as many statements from the whole light corpus uh, as possible automatically. But we don't really know how. So what, what, is, what, what does a 70% or 80% or 90% number really means in terms of mathematical proving capabilities? I see. Uh, it's, re- it's really hard to put an in really inter- interpretable <laughs> statement on, on on the quality of the system if you just present a number on this. And I think one of the other the other problem is that mathematics you cannot do in isolation. So measuring mathematical capabilities always depends on how much knowledge you assume. So for example, proving a theorem from axioms is definitely is typically very, very hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you say, okay, I'm I'm just measuring from certain CRMs, but then then, then it's highly dependent on what, what your theory is already exists, what, what did, you, did you already prove before. So everything is in the context. So it's not something like in isolation, like in images. Images, you can say, okay, how many percent of the objects do I recognize? But in mathematics, you cannot say how many percent of the CRMs do I prove? Because it highly depends on what CRMs you already know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you know the exact right lemmas to prove something, then it then a complicated theorem is trivial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you cannot really count the number of theorems uh, you proved, but it's very hard to if you want to make a, a grand challenge about uh, like auto formalization, understanding mathematics books. That's even harder because you don't even, cannot even verify whether the mathematics you created from that book really matches what was in the book. Mm-hmm. How do you do, how do you do that? How do you evaluate your your systems automatically? Yeah, yeah. There is no way I can see.
0: Do you have some next steps in mind? Is it is it to like keep going with these, um, like the pre-training objectives you're exploring, things like that?
1: I think uh, one of the most important things we are working now is to use natural language. So that's what was kind of neglected a bit in, in our previous research. So we did a lot of research on formal mathematics and then exploring how far neural networks can reason on them. And we had like very promising initial results like outperforming previous uh, automated theorem provers, but uh, we uh, definitely, we should spend much more time on, Digesting a lot of natural language and see whether it helps for uh, for the formal uh, for proving formal statements, and that's what we are working on now.
0: Well, yeah, this has been uh, a great discussion. So, all, going back to, to even before your PhD, working on on math, participating in competitions, making your way through the PhD, and then it was really interesting that this idea of AI for mathematical reasoning type things was kind of always in mind uh, as you went throughout your career. So it, it's really cool to see this all going on now, and it, it'll be cool to see the, the results of it. So looking back, I mean, the, one of the hardest questions that we ask on the podcast is to to think of one piece of advice. But like looking back, can you think of, of one thing to maybe a new researcher that you found uh, useful to keep in mind?
1: So yeah, I, I think if I look back at my life, I think, I always made the mistake, so all the mistakes I make made and, and still making, uh, a lot of times when I don't think big enough. Mm. So it's it's rather you fail on a really, really ambitious, important problem and then produce some interesting side effect, than, and, than, than thinking too, and aiming too low. Mm. So never never aim too low and be very optimistic about what happens. Because often, even if it doesn't happen what you want, it's like the side effect of doing the cool thing is uh, better than if you would just uh, try to do uninteresting things. Uh, just like an epsilon changing something.
3: I see, yeah.
0: So so even if you fail on going for a really hard problem, the result is usually interesting in and of itself.
1: So basically, imagine and anytime you try to do anything, imagine what is the best case outcome of that. Process and if the best case outcome is boring, then don't do it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> and the problem is, I, I, I often make that mistake still. It's like because it's tempting, you just think, Okay, this looks like an interesting thing, I can do it in an afternoon. You typically cannot do it in an afternoon to start with. Secondly, even if you do it, it's just a waste of time. So, so. So don't do that <laughs> so uh, figure out something that really excites you and then uh, don't don't hesitate to like give up stuff for it and then just do it uh, and do the big things uh, and that that, that, that can uh, like change a lot of things so I I, I I managed to cut down a lot of uninteresting things I would have worked on if I uh, so that I would that I did earlier I, I worked on anything and I was not discriminating enough and later I figured out that what you work is more important than how you work. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah
0: well that's really great advice and I think that's a good place to wrap it up so thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk about all this and thanks for coming on the thesis review.
1: Yeah thank you for the conversation it was a pleasure.